Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. Much of our success in life comes down to our ability to identify the things we're passionate about, pursue them with consistency, and keep going when things get tough. Anyone can be passionate and productive for a few days or when things are easy, but still plugging away when the weather gets rough, that's when we need grit. Last year, Dr. Rick Hansen and I explored topics related to grit, like how we can build agency or determination. In those episodes, we alluded to the work of Dr. Angela Duckworth, one of the world's leading researchers on the subject of grit and author of the bestseller, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. And today, we have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Dr. Duckworth herself. It's fantastic to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to getting into this material with you and Dr. Hansen today. Outside of being a best-selling author, Dr. Duckworth is a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania and founder of the nonprofit Character Lab. Through the Character Lab, she offers a free thought of the week. This is one minute of actionable advice based on science that lands in your email inbox every Sunday morning. She writes them all herself, and they're approved by the scientists she cites. If you'd like to sign up for the Thought of the Week, we'll include the link to it in the description of today's episode. Dr. Duckworth has also given an incredibly popular TED Talk on the subject of grit that's been watched over 20 million times. So I think it's likely that most of the people listening to this have either read or heard of your book, TED Talk, or research generally. But for someone who may be less familiar with your work, when you use the word grit, what do you mean by that? I define grit as the combination of having passion and perseverance for a really long-term goal. Mm-hmm. So you can think of it as you know, staying the course or having stamina over really for adults, you know, years or decades when many other people you know, have dropped out. How did you get interested in this topic? I've been interested in achievement, you know, since I was a, a little girl growing up with a mm. dad who was, you know, obsessed with achievement and uh, wanted his kids and himself to be world-class at something. And when I was growing up, my dad referred a lot to his his own intelligence. He thought he was pretty smart and uh, <laughs> kind of wondered how smart his kids were. And I, I think, wow. you know, in my own research, I've discovered that Sure, you know, being smart or talented, of course it matters. I mean, I don't want to pretend that we're all equally gifted, but, you know, in the long run, I think so much depends on how much you love what you do and stay in love with what you do and and work hard at it and and get up again when you fall Mm. and um, constantly dedicate yourself to improvement. And those things are not the same thing as as talent or intelligence, but Mm. they end up being incredibly important. Were you naturally gritty yourself as a kid? Or was it something you had to develop over time? You know, when I think back to um, when I was in, you know, elementary school or middle school, I mean, I do think I had a kind of, uh, you know, rebellious, um, I mean, not that rebellious, honestly, uh, but but a little bit of a stubborn streak. And um, I did have a kind of I'll show you response when people said, you know, like, oh, you can't do that. I mean, my immediate response when someone says you can't do that, it's too hard, you know, is I'll show you. Um, So I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, I had some of that um, when I was young, but, you know, one thing I didn't have um, when I was young, I don't think anybody or most people have anyway, it's like a sense of purpose. And that's something which takes sometimes, um, you know, many years to develop. And and when you really feel like what your work is, is, is meaningful and that it helps other people. I mean, that really gets you out of bed uh, early in the morning. Yeah. This, this will relate to a question we'll probably ask later, but. Uh, when you talk about that sense of purpose, 
you're really talking about developing it from the inside out. And for a lot of people, that's challenging to do when there's so much pressure from the outside in, such as from a father or other parents, mm-hmm. to develop or acquire their purpose or to live up to their standards. So how did you do that, kind of differentiate and find your own purpose from the inside out? What, you know, being, being an Asian female growing up in South Jersey suburbs, it was, you know, like practically my, my destiny to become a doctor, you know, that's... <laughs> what I was going to college for and was, you know, horrified that I didn't take the MCATs, you know, the exams that you take uh, for admission to medical school. And I, I think that the pressure that a lot of people are really of all ages, I'm thinking about, you know, teenagers, but I, I think this is true really, um, you know, so much of our, our life is spent, you know, trying to figure out what we want to do versus what other people expect us mm-hmm. to do or for that we would do. I think for me, um, I started volunteering in high school, I, you know, it's really attracted to community service. I used to volunteer at the Red Cross blood bank because I was, um, like, I guess I was anemic, so I couldn't give blood. So I, you know, I don't know, drive to the blood bank every week and like volunteer and give out pretzels and hold people's arms up. And I think then that got a little more um, focused for me in college. I started, um, you know, working with kids after school, you know, from the local neighborhoods. And I mean, honestly, I was like shocked at how, how behind they were academically. And I was like, whoa, someone's got to fix the K through 12 education Uh system in this country. Because I had grown up with these like very good public schools Mm. in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't realize like how, um, you know, how uneven the playing fields were. And then when I was in my 20s, I didn't quite yet know. I mean, I knew public service, I knew education, but, you know, um, it took me really all of my 20s and until I was 32 to figure out that what I would specifically do in education is try to unpack um, motivation and and effort. And I would do that as a psychologist. So I, I started a PhD program. You know, I was pregnant with my second kid. I was already with a husband who couldn't move his job. So it wasn't ideal in some ways. Um, I wish I had figured things out earlier, but I think it's a good, you know, story to tell in the sense that, you know, a lot of people who are listening might think like, is it too late for me to figure out my yeah. purpose? Um, or to be gritty. And I, I think that, you know, we're all on our own time scale. And for, for many of us, it will come a little later than we would wish. But, you know, when we do figure things out, it's um, wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. And so what you're alluding to there is part of what you've already said, which is this kind of two component construction of grit that you have between passion and perseverance. Would you say that these two elements are equally important? Do they support each other? Is there kind of a 60 40 here between the two of them? It's really a great question. And I wish as a scientist, um, I could tell you, I looked, for example, in uh, my data sets at West Point, mm-hmm. because we've been administering the grid scale, not once, not twice, but I think we're up to a dozen times over um, as many years mm-hmm. looking to see, you know, what happens to these cadets. And every year we find that the grittier cadets end up um, doing better at West Point, you know, staying through the first summers, you know, graduating in four years. Um, and when you look at the passion items compared to the perseverance items on the grit scale, they actually perform pretty comparably. And in fact, you know, when you put them all together, it's better than either one. So my, my sense is this, the people who end up being um, not only successful, but also happy in their work have that combination. I think there is something about having stamina, both in your commitments and also how willing you are to keep working at those Mm -hmm. commitments. I would imagine, I mean, what I hear you say is that uh, it looks like, at least in that sample, that the passion aspect of grit 
contributes as much to the outcome, at least as much as the perseverance aspects on average. And I guess I'm also imagining that maybe over the long haul, passion actually makes more of a difference in terms of long-term satisfaction uh, with what people are doing. What do you think about that? I think that's a great hypothesis. You're you're getting at something which is important, um, which is that there are circumstances in which grit matters more Mm. um, and passion matters Mm -hmm. more and those that they matter less. So for example, you look at kids' report cards and you say like, well, the grittier kids are going to get better report cards. That is true. But, um, you know, most kids are not passionate about their (laughs) (laughs) English and math. I mean, you know, wish that they were, but let's, let's be honest. In fact, most kids are more passionate, much more passionate about the things they do outside of class, Mm. like sports or, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe they're in like the school newspaper um, or maybe they have a job even. Um, And um, when you look at this data on, on kids and their experience, it makes sense that passion doesn't you know, express itself honestly between the hours of like 8.30 and 2.30. But then when you look at West Point and in other samples of adults where your your day-to-day work is something that you've chosen and and you feel like you identify with, um, I, I really believe what you just said, which is that, you know, more and more in life, passion is going to contribute to your long-term satisfaction. Yeah. Are there other things inside people that correlate with passion and perseverance uh, and also uh, perhaps support passion and perseverance, other factors inside people? Well, I'll begin um, with a study that was done by my PhD advisor um, and me, as, as well as others, including uh, Chris Peterson, who was a leader in the positive psychology movement and had an untimely death. But before Chris passed, you know, he and Marty and I were thinking about approaches to happiness and the idea that people will pursue happiness in different ways. And they had created, Chris and Marty, a questionnaire that had three approaches to happiness. Um, one set of items was about approaching happiness through meaning and purpose. And essentially, that means um, being part of something larger than yourself and then thinking about how what you do serves and uh, benefits other people. Then there was a kind of engagement or flow approach to happiness, mm. which is you know, looking for happiness through just being really absorbed in what you do, even if it's not meaningful or purposeful, but it's really engaging. And then finally, there was pleasure, you know, like hedonic satisfaction, um, having an easy life, having a lot of comforts and a lot of, you know, moments of like, you know, good restaurants and, you know, nice vacations. And what we found is that um, people who are gritty tend to be oriented uh, much more by purpose and meaning than by pleasure, mm-hmm. um, and also by by kind of engagement and flow. Mm-hmm. So, so I think the picture that gets painted is that, you know, it's somebody primarily wants to, you know, earn a lot of money and um, like have a really big house and, you know, um, enjoy like long vacations. Like that's, that's not the profile of someone motivationally um, who's very gritty. Hmm. That's really interesting because the, the language that I hear you using there, that more happiness driven language is not, I think, what most people associate, whether it be through passion or through actual just hedonic pleasure with, with the idea of grit. But you're drawing at least an association there from passion, which I think of as a pretty positive emotion. Passion feels good in the body. But I don't think that most of us think that grit feels good in the body. I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that, but it seems like an interesting distinction. I don't even know where the word grit comes from. I mean, maybe some <laughs> I actually Googled it. I was like, where is it from? You know, my husband thinks it's from like gritting your teeth when mm. something's really 
hard. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. But where does that come from? Sure, but anyway, yeah. I, I agree. The word grit doesn't make you think of like rainbows and, and like unicorns. But, um, you know, when you, when you reflect on what you really want in life, you know, it might not be that you want a carefree kind of happiness. Mm. You know, I am pretty um, intense and I, I, I don't sleep well sometimes and I am gritting my teeth a lot. My dentist tells me, um, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm not sad, but I'm, you know, I have a lot of, you know, challenges and problems that I'm dealing with, but it's not a life I would trade for any others. And, and, and I think that's exactly what I find about, you know, women and men who are exemplars of grit, that they feel like their life is not an easy life and they could, they could, in many cases, like immediately toggle into an easier life. You know, like they don't have to take on the, the projects that they do. They don't need to, you know, start a podcast or like, you know, <laughs> in a new company. Like they, but they choose to, um, not because, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. As, as you know, as, mm. as before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, speaking of a podcast, most of our episodes on this podcast focus on developing key strengths of various kinds, kind of how can you get more of the good stuff into your mind, body, heart. So with that in mind, how much of what makes a person gritty is the result of innate factors like temperament? And how much of what makes a person gritty can be actually developed or changed uh, over time, either through supporting the environment or through kind of active effort on part of the person? I think anybody who's interested in self-development, and, and that should be all of us, um, ask the question, you know, what can I change and what, mm. what can't I? And sometimes I think when we look at our family members and we see, you know, some of the things that we do, I, you know, I told my daughter she must have inherited her bad temper from me. Uh, <laughs> I do think, you know, you, you wonder about your genes, right? Yeah. I mean, in, pr- in particular, like DNA cannot be changed. Your DNA will not change. And you inherited that um, at birth, it was a shuffle of the deck between your biological mom and your biological father, and um, and that's it. And for grit, genetics definitely plays a part. There's mm. a big twin study that was done in the United Kingdom, and you know, as twins took the grit scale, and so you know, you can see from that data that there is a genetic component of grit, if you will. But um, it's by the way the same for literally every trait. I mean extroversion, um, your, uh, you know, interest in learning new things, you you know, how likely it is that you're going to join an organized religion, um, whether you like broccoli, I mean, literally everything about you has a genetic component. But for all those things, it's, um, it's also true that the environment you grow up in and your experiences matter enormously. So this old nature versus nurture question is really um, settled by science to say it's really nature and nurture. Um, So I think um, we could take a lesson from a study that was done by a great psychologist named Steve Heine. He wondered whether when people thought about genetics and thought about this genetic component, whether in a way would give them a a bit of an excuse to not try hard. So he, in an experiment, you know, shared with people like, hey, you know, your weight is uh, partly genetic. Mm. So, you know, just so you know. And he found that that demotivated people to eat healthy So I think the important lesson here is that even while we acknowledge that we all have DNA, we can't change our DNA, it's obviously going to have some influence on us, we should also not make it an excuse to to not work on the things that we want to work on. And I'll finally say that, you know, one of the most important findings in the most, um, you know, like recent neuroscience work is, is that the brain is plastic. I mean, the brain is changing for your whole life. And there's not a moment in your life where you can't learn. So we should take that science to heart and say, 
you know, what can I do? Not, not dwell on what we, what we can't fix. Do you think sometimes about grit as located in relationships? What I mean by that is so far we've been talking about uh, factors inside people, you know, innate and acquired. But what about the ways in which grit, at least in the moment, not developmentally, but in the moment is co-created in a relationship? So it would be meaningful to speak of, let's say, a family that has grit or even a community that has grit. How, how do you think in those ways? I think you're exactly right. I, I like to sometimes think of it as surrogate grit. For example, you know, um, when I was writing um, the grit book and then so many other times in my life, I um, have, you know, faltered. You know, I literally said at, at the breakfast table one day, I quit. Like, yeah, I can't yeah. do it. It's too hard. It's not like anything tragic happened. It's just like, I can't do it. And my daughters, you know, being kids, of course, always quick to point out the obvious. We're like, uh, you know, isn't that funny that, you know, you study grit and you're, you're quitting on writing your book on grit. <laughs> uh, so I, which I found deeply unfunny at the time. But, uh, <laughs> of course they were right. And, you know, the person who didn't let me quit was my husband, Jason. I mean, he, you know, wiped my tears, made me another cup of coffee and mm. like, you know, let me complain to him. And then I, and then I did, I got up again and, and I, I started the project, you know, the next morning. And I think for so many of us, we can think of times where, you know, maybe it was our father or our mother, uh, you know, a, a caring boss mm. or a spouse. Mm -hmm. um, I know some adults who actually um, find that the role is reversed a little bit, that in some ways they rely on their children mm. to give them confidence and encouragement. So I do think that grit is in a way co-created in that sense. And sometimes you rely on surrogate grit, you know, the grit mm. of somebody who loves you, because we really do. We all have bad days. I don't know anyone who doesn't have bad days. I'll just finally say that um, it's not only just in the moment, though. I think that when you ask the question, you know, who grows up to be psychologically, you know, resilient um, and to have passion for things, so much of, of, of that does come from being blessed by I think support along the way that mm. endures. And I did not have perfect parents because nobody does, but I do thank them for basically providing a, a, like a, 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 an environment of, of safety and of love that um, I think is a lot of my confidence today. Yeah, absolutely. So we've spoken about kind of the ways that community can support grit. We've spoken about genetic factors of grit, and you've made a very strong allusion to this being a trait that could potentially be developed by somebody over time. So with that in mind, let's say that I'm a kid who kind of failed the famous marshmallow test. Maybe I have an issue with self-control. Maybe I'm not inherently the grittiest person on the face of the planet. What are some of the things that I can do? And frankly, particularly in terms of the people who might be listening to this podcast who are more in their 40s and 50s, what can you do as you continue to move through life to develop those aspects of grit? Yeah, the marshmallow test is something that I've studied. And mm. um, if Walter Michelle, who recently passed, as you may know, mm -hmm. he used to say when he had a moment, you know, with a parent or with somebody who, you know, is feeling like they didn't have a lot of willpower, that, you know, the most important thing that he ever discovered was that you can practice and that these are really not things like you have or you don't, but more that there are strategies. And in the marshmallow test, um, some of the four-year-olds use better strategies than others, you know, some of them like looked away from the marshmallow or they, you know, turned their backs completely mm -hmm. or put their hands over their eyes. And those are all strategies <laughs> that you can teach a kid. You know, it's like, if you don't want to be on your cell phone, put your cell phone in another room, mm -hmm. right? You know, just like sit here and use willpower. So I think the idea that, you know, whether you're four or 40 or 84, that you could learn strategies. 
I think there are strategies for grit, there are strategies for self-control, there are strategies for gratitude. You can be sort of savvy or clever. I mean, you know, put those resources in different configurations without fundamentally changing, you know, your, your resources, you can still do better. And so I think we can all be kind of the generals of our own lives and think, well, how can I be really smart about this? You know, what can I do to be clever, to be more self-controlled, to be grittier, to be the person I want to be? Just thinking about what you said about um, staying the course as sort of the, the outcome of grit. And in a way, when people have strategies like you're describing, they're more able to stay on the course with less friction, let's say. And so when I think about grit, it's this capacity inside us. And, and I'm open to correction. This is a naive question here. I think of it as the capacity inside to tolerate friction through external support or internal strategies. We can move down the road of life more skillfully and, and thus with less friction between us and the world. But sometimes there's an irreducible friction. You know, I have a lot of background in rock climbing. And I think about certain times where you can have the best strategy in the world, your feet hurt, the wind's blowing hard, you're scared, it sucks, and you have to keep going. That's when grit really is at issue. So I wonder, how do you think that people develop that capacity to tolerate friction? You know, sort of like the grittiest essence of grit, what's left when everything else is worn away. There are absolutely circumstances in life where, for whatever reason, like you can't actually execute a very clever strategy. You just have to deal with it, yeah, right? And yeah. scientists sometimes call this, and therapists sometimes call it distress tolerance. Yeah. It's, it is part of life, I think, to deal with, as Freud once put it, unpleasure, hmm. which is a word that I don't even know exists in the dictionary. <laughs> So much of life is about immediate gratification and one-click shopping yeah. and just endless entertainment. I think that you, you asked a question, you know, where does it come from, this capacity? And my sense is that it is something that you build up in a way through habituation. Mm. If you look at the capacity for young children to tolerate distress of any kind, yeah. like just waiting, you know, one more minute for their ice cream cone. It's sometimes like only seconds that they can wait when they're very young. But, you know, we gradually learn that the world doesn't end when we're in distress. And one of the major lessons from therapy, for example, many therapeutic traditions, including cognitive therapy, is that you learn that when people say things like, I can't stand it anymore, mm -hmm. like I can't, can't do this, you know, that's not true. Like mm -hmm. you actually can. <laughs> And you have to prove that to yourself. You can't just have someone tell that to you. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash beingwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash being well. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, 
no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years, and the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to The Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. So we've spoken mostly to this point about the perseverance aspect of grit and kind of not so much the passion aspect of it. Much as you can habituate to that sense of perseverance and over time you can kind of build up your distress tolerance, are there things that you can do to increase the passion aspects of grit in your lives? Are there is there research or testing that's been done on this? You know, notably, there's actually less research, I mm. think, on passion um, and more on perseverance. And perseverance, yeah, we have mindset and optimism. You know, we know a lot about deliberate practice, and um, that's the kind of daily perseverance I think that people need. But, but what about passion? And in, in a way, um, I think it's the bigger problem for a lot of people. When I give out the grit scale, I find reliably, no matter where I am, you know, whether it's at West Point or whether it's, you know, salespeople, that people actually score higher in perseverance than they do in passion. And I think that is revealing. So where do we go with passion? I think the early stages of passion are usually about interest. So purpose actually tends to come after interest. In other words, say, for example, you know, you decide that you really like people. And so you're going to end up in sales and, you know, you have a sales job because it's enjoyable and it's interesting to you. Like you just like the day to day. Most people who become really great in sales will like realize when they do their job well, then their clients are really happy and they've solved problems. So the purpose usually comes second. So I would say that um, in terms of where we go, I, I, I would like to know more about where those interests come from Mm. before, you know, beyond the self-purpose kind of adds to it. You know, for a lot of young people, you know, in their 20s and their 30s, they really can't articulate an interest that really keeps them motivated. And I'll give one clue. And then I I guess I'll just say that we need more science on it, Mm. which is that it's very hard to predict your interests from like just thinking about it. So there's a kind of idiosyncrasy to our interests. And so for a lot of us, we can be vaguely, I could tell you, I'm never going to be a historian. (laughs) But then when you're like, okay, but be more specific. And I mentioned that I I had an uh, an interest in education, even in college, but I I couldn't tell you I was going to study grit and self 
self-control in children, right? So it took me a long time. And I think the key is that you have to try things. You can't sit in your bedroom and write in your journal and try to figure out your passions that way. Mm. You have to spend a day with a doctor if you think you want to be a doctor. Like, you know, if you think that you want to quit your job and go into nonprofits mm. and like, I take a day off and like spend it in a nonprofit. I think it's not a mental exercise as much as an experiential exercise. That is really one of the things that struck me a lot about your work that many, many uh, young people score actually higher in the perseverance aspect than on the passion aspect. And it makes me think about my own experience in uh, schools, college prep programs, college-bound youth. Uh, they're strong on perseverance, but they don't know why they're doing it. And they don't have the passion side. And it does make me think about the ways in which uh, many conventional programs are so focused on developing perseverance that it actually crowds out passion. It gets in the way of passion. And so I wondered if you could say more about that in terms of kind of public policy at schools in general and what you'd like to see in your version of a perfect world. And also, meanwhile, what kids can do and what families can do to kind of claim the priority of passion and push back against pressure for short-term performance. There's so much pressure that, you know, is coming from all different places on young people. And, and almost none of that pressure is pressure to like try to support them and figuring out what they actually like. Yeah. There's a lot of pressure to get good standardized test scores like the SAT. There's a lot of pressure to like supposedly check off the right boxes extracurricular wise so they can get into the right schools. But I think the biggest problem or the biggest challenge, if I put it in a positive way, my, my own kids are 17 and 15. And their biggest challenge, I think, is to figure out something that they like. Hmm. You know, mm -hmm. for example, they came home the other day and, you know, they're thinking about the summer, which is going to coming up and they feel all this pressure to like do something that will quote unquote look good to colleges. Mm -hmm. And I tell them again and again that I don't care about colleges. Right? I mean, they should think about like, what is something that will get them closer and closer to, to something that they'll enjoy? And if that doesn't mean um, that colleges are going to recognize it, then I think you still made the right decision. But I have the privilege of actually hanging out with a lot of deans of admissions and, you know, places like Harvard and, and Penn. And I would tell you that those admissions, you know, decision makers do not want kids to check off boxes and to spend their whole day and their whole evening and all of their weekends doing things that they don't care about. I think that authenticity mm -hmm. is something that um, is kind of win-win. I mean, if you're trying to figure out things that you like and you're putting all of your effort into them, like, trust me, the world will reward you. Mm. So I, I think there's a lot of kind of external pressure. I wish that schools had more leeway to help kids you know, have enough time in their day, it has to probably be structured. So if you just say like, hey, sometime on your own, you should explore your own interests. Like, I just don't know how many kids are going to do that. But what if there were a class period, you know, even if it were like once a week for one class period, where like the whole point of that class period is that you were just going to, you know, explore things on the internet, or like, you know, you could call people during that class period, like, I, I think that would be amazing. And I know there are some schools that are doing that, mm -hmm. but it takes a really innovative school leader to um, say, you know, we value curiosity, you know, we value purpose, you know, there's never going to be a standardized test on them, but these kids are developing. So like, you know, it's our responsibility. I think that's great. And that's a great point in general that's really sort of encapsulating a, a big theme that you're speaking to here, which is that the dogged pursuit day after day of something that you really don't care about is not really grit in terms of, of the operating definition that you're giving here of it. What you're really talking about is pursuing your true goals with passion and vigor over time. Is that more or less an accurate assessment? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think about when you, you know, if you imagine mental imagery here, like, you know, a kid who's like working, you know, eight hours a day on viola and like, but they don't care about it. That's tragic. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
it's worse than drudgery. And I, I see it a lot. In fact, you know, when I give talks, you know, that very often after, even after I've spoken for like an hour about the importance of passion, you know, <laughs> parents will get up and I'm like, but, but how do I get But, but how do I make them work harder? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, I, I wish we, we had a different focus and mm. I, I think I'm trying to be empathic with those parents. I mean, I know they want the best for their kids, but I think sometimes their energy is misplaced. Yeah. Forrest actually played the viola. When he was a kid, ironically, and I did. I think he liked viola. it most of the time. <laughs> I did. I did like it most of the time. It was mostly not drudgery. Um, there were definitely some hours spent in a very small practice room that were not my favorite time as a child. I, I will admit that. But uh, in general, I think I made it through the other side without being deeply scarred by it. So, <laughs> well, my husband plays viola, and my daughter plays viola. Hey, there you go. But I will say this. Here's the thing. I, I do want to. Um, you know, on a serious note, note mm-hmm. like it's not like you want your kid to um, have fun all the time. Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm not anti-fun, but I don't think the the goal here is that like they're entertained and everything's easy. So, for example, mm-hmm. my daughter has played viola, and I have every year invited her to quit. Mm. Like I've invited her. I'm like, do you want to do viola next year, or do you want to do something else? And that, and she's chosen to do the viol, to do the viol. So now, once she's chosen that, there are going to be those Friday nights where you know she sure. practices and she doesn't want to. But I think that the idea of having something that you've chosen to do, mm. even though it's going to be hard, is radically different from that thing being chosen for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great point. So, kind of along those lines. Good research can be used for iffy purposes, and I would imagine there are probably some ways where iffy research can be used for good purposes. But do you think that there's kind of a way, maybe along these lines of this misunderstanding of the combination of passion and perseverance, or something else entirely, where people have sort of fundamentally misunderstood or misapplied some of your work? Well, I'm one scientist, and there are now, you know, lots of scientists Mm. who study Right. You know, I think it's important for me not to say like I'm right and everyone else who doesn't agree with me is wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll just flag for a moment that critics of the grit research will say, you know, it's just the same thing as being conscientious. Or it's just the same thing as being self-controlled, like having good impulse control. And I do think that what those things are missing crucially is a sense of long-term passion. So that's my perspective, but I don't want to like, you know, beat everyone else into submission um, and make them all agree with me. So I'll just flag that. I, I do think though that, you know, one of the most fundamental human drives is to have autonomy and to do things that we care about intrinsically. And there's lots of research that I didn't do, hmm. about four or five decades of research showing that people who are freely choosing what they're doing. They do it better. They do it uh, longer. They they work harder, um, and they're much more satisfied. And so that that seems to me to kind of make be a general argument for 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 passion. Mm-hmm. And of course, I have a personal argument for it as well. You know, I think of what you're saying here, as I understand it, about grit is that it's essentially a synergy of passion and perseverance. And Forrest brought this up at the very beginning about the idea of the two supporting each other in a upward spiral, perhaps. Could you talk about that? How passion actually serves perseverance and how you need perseverance to sustain passion over time? I can maybe use myself as an example of, Mm. you know, how these two, you know, aspects of grit might support each other. So for me, passion looks like being, I mean, I think about it all the time. Mm. Literally, if you were like bumping into me on the street in the middle of a sunny afternoon on a Saturday, 
And you're like, what are you thinking about right now? I'm like, I'm thinking about my research. Like, of course I am, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't take breaks from it. So that in a way is what passion looks like. It's like somebody who's voluntarily obsessed with what they do. And then that, of course, mm-hmm. is complementary to or like sets me up well to actually do stuff, right? Like I'm, I think passion without perseverance is like, oh, this person's voluntarily obsessed for years, but they never did anything, right? So the perseverance is like, you know, I, I get back to my computer after that long walk and then I email two collaborators and I you know, work on the data that we're analyzing at West Point, and then there's a data problem, and like we don't understand. I have to call 19 people to figure it out. Like, hey, I'm gonna do it, and then I, you know, so the, you know, you do toggle back and forth. I think between the loving what you do and then actually working really hard at it, but you can see how these things are, um, you know, in a way I think like deeply complementary. And I don't think you want people ultimately who are passionate without perseverance. And I, I mm. you know, as we already described, I don't think we want people who are, you know, all perseverance and no passion either. I think that line that you gave there, voluntarily obsessed, is a really, really wonderful kind of phrase and encapsulation of the work as a whole. So that's really beautifully said. Just as, if you don't mind kind of sharing personally here, are there ways in which your own behavior has changed since you've delved into the research on grit, whether that be in terms of with your children or in your own life individually? I have a kind of a meta theory, which is like a kind of, you know, deep, deep, Bet, I mean, if you will, which is that when people understand themselves better, they can actually do more. In other words, you know, if you understand how grit works, you could be gritty. Or if you understand, you know, why people get depressed, you now have a huge advantage over someone who doesn't if you're trying to, you know, crawl out of depression. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, maybe that's an underlying motivation for this podcast in general, right? That you're trying to help people understand how things work so that they can use that information to their advantage. In my own case, I remember I was writing a chapter in grit about having a hierarchy of goals, having, you know, this kind of list of things they have to get done this week, and they're very concrete and specific and short term. And then of course, like, why do you have this to do list? Well, those are probably part of, you know, projects that, for example, might take even a year to complete. Okay, so then that's the second level of goals, that's a little higher, but then you probably have like 10 year plans, like things you want to get done. And then ultimately, you have one thing that you could say, like, you know, this is the goal that rules them all. This is my purpose. Mm -hmm. And for me, when I wrote that chapter, I was like, Oh, wait a second, what is mine? I I think I should get a little more articulate about that. And I, I struggled for a few days, you know, maybe even a week or more. And I finally wrote down, use psychological science to help kids thrive. Mm-hmm. And I literally wrote it down. And then I made a picture of all the goals and how they connected to the And I was like, you know what, this next time I have to make decisions, somebody wants me to give a talk or be on a podcast or the decision rule is, is this going to help me use psychological science to help kids thrive? And if the answer is yes, then I'm going to do it. And mm-hmm. if the answer is no, I'm not going to do it. And I think that is one way where like understanding the, the science behind goals and goal hierarchies and grit, you know, made a difference in my own life. This could kind of come in a little bit from left field, but you may know this. I, I have a background also a clinical psychologist as a therapist. And so I'm thinking about a lot of different kinds of people for whom just temperamentally, there are vulnerabilities in them that would undermine the perseverance aspects of grit in particular. They're Uh, vulnerable to anxiety or depression, or they are uh, highly sensitive perceptually. And that goes with a highly sensitive uh, temperament in general, as you know. So I'm wondering about the ways in which grit can be characterized as a character virtue in a really kind of moralizing sense so that as someone who doesn't have the perseverance aspects of grit in particular could feel weak, like a weakling or a bad person. So Mm -hmm. how could someone who, let's say, in terms of those innate factors, 
that support grit is has relatively low innate factors and just can't sustain more than six or eight hours a day without get developing chronic fatigue syndrome or et cetera, et cetera, things like that. How could someone who is like that, let's say, still be kind to themselves, still have compassion for themselves and still help themselves uh, build up internal factors of grit over time and call in more of that, would you call it auxiliary support or you know, yeah. collateral I, support. I call it surrogate grit. Yeah, surrogate grit from call, other people. Call them the forces. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's a really uh, profound point, and um, uh, one I'd like to underscore, which is self development should not become, you know, self blame, yeah. right? And it's not that we should all walk around thinking that we're perfect, but um, in general, I saw this quote the other day: something like, "Comparison is the thief of joy." Oh. And I think that um, if we you know, we try to stack ourselves up to others, which is, you know, partly a human impulse, right? I mean, who among us doesn't do that? Of, of course, there's some tendency to do that. But generally, I think self-development um, works better when we think about me compared to me yesterday, mm. right? I mean, that's really the world that you can deal with. Mm. So is my Wednesday going to be better than my Tuesday, you know, in some way? Like, what can I do? And I think that helps us, you know, not think like, oh, but this other person like seems to only need four hours of sleep. And like, you know, this other person like is just never in a bad mood. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think if we don't compare ourselves to other people, but we just ask, how can I do better compared to what I was before? I think it puts us on pretty firm ground. And, you know, a lot of society, when we put kids together, for example, you know, historically, it was not the case that there would be a thousand 16 year olds mm -hmm. all sitting next to each other, you know, then like the next year you're just with a thousand 17 year olds. And I think a lot of the ways we've set up our social structures kind of invites comparison. Social media, mm -hmm. by the way, is just a machine of envy mm -hmm. and social comparison. So I, I think that some of our structures work against just being like, Hey, basically I've just got myself to work on here. Mm -hmm. Like, what can I do? But I think it's really good. Um, you know, wisdom that you're sharing, that that's exactly where our attention should be. Mm, yeah. So you've alluded to it a couple of times during this conversation with before you mentioned having potentially a, uh, a period of exploration in school where for an hour a kid could investigate something that they were particularly passionate about, or now when you were talking about the structure of classes and how if you really think about it throughout history, it's really a very unnatural structure to have a thousand 17-year-olds just hanging out constantly comparing to one another. So if you could give let's say, hypothetically, one suggestion that tomorrow every school had to implement, what would that be? I'm going to cheat and maybe give a few. Oh, um, knock yourself <laughs> out. One is I really do think there's some magic when older kids and younger kids are together. Mm. And the first thing I did when I graduated from college is I started a summer program. Um, it was modeled after one I had volunteered in where uh, we our motto was older kids teaching younger kids. And the magic happens when you thrust together, you know, a 19 year old and a 12 year old. I mean, the 19 year old will take care of the 12 year old like they just will. And, and it happens when you put a six year old together with a four year old, the six year old figures, you know, like, oh, I better hold this kid's hand while I'm walking, you know, across the mm -hmm. driveway. Like, mm -hmm. it's um, a magical thing when kids are not with just peers of the same age, but of mixed groups. I think for those of you who are familiar with the Montessori program that mm -hmm. has deliberately like mixed age classrooms, I mean, there's a lot of psychological wisdom built into that program. Of course, there's more than that. So one um, concrete suggestion, which would be like, how can you structure your school day so that kids have some opportunity to be with uh, kids of other ages and in, in settings where it's basically, you know, older kids helping younger kids. The second idea I had was, yeah, could there be a, you know, an elective or a requirement even like, like 
the passion course where you have to be selfish in a way, which is like explore mm-hmm. your own mm-hmm. interests, um, not your parents' interests or the ones that are going to be on the standardized test, but just things that you like. And finally, my third suggestion was I've always wanted a school to start a class called Failure 101. Yeah. And like, for example, like one assignment could be like, you have to do something where like nine out of 10 people at least are going to reject you, right? Mm. Like send 10 emails to like celebrities who like are not going to answer it or, you know, try out for a sports team that you know you're not going to make. That's really great. Yeah. I think that, you know, to your earlier point about that, at some point you have to develop a kind of thick skin about something. I mean, you have to be able to handle And, and as you know, with your background, you're going to you already know this, but I'll just say for some folks who are listening that might not know this, one of the problems with anxiety and fear is that, you know, we just avoid the things that we mm. don't want to confront. And then, of course, we never get over them because we're constantly avoiding them. So I think exposure therapy for for failure mm. um, would be enormously helpful. And I can imagine that it would turn this whole thing on its head. It would make a kind of place where, like, that's the whole point. We took the, the only way to pass the failure course is to fail. <laughs> I love that idea. I think that's a really great idea, actually. One of the reoccurring topics on this podcast has absolutely been this idea of expanding your circle of comfort over time, where we all kind of live in the invisible cage of the mind to a certain extent. And part of our job as we develop is to kind of push the walls of that further and further out over time. So I I think that's a wonderful point and uh, probably would have made me a much more adventurous kid if I had (laughs) had such a course in my life, because I'm definitely prone to a little bit of that anxiety from time to time. So we're kind of approaching the end of our time here, Doctor, and I want to get you out of here with plenty of time to spare to get into your next call. But I just really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Very much. Thank you. This is such a great conversation. I think I've not only enjoyed it in the moment, I think you're giving me more than one idea for research in the future. So thank you both. You guys are um, you know, doing great work. I really respect it. Well, thank you thank so you. much. We really appreciate that. So, today, we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Angela Duckworth. Dr. Duckworth began by defining grit and sharing how she became interested in the topic of achievement from a very young age. She emphasized how grit is distinct from talent, and just as important, if not more important, when it comes to long-term success. We then began to explore the two key components that Dr. Duckworth defines as making up grit, passion, and perseverance. While both are critically important, Dr. Duckworth consistently emphasized the importance of passion for both grit and long-term satisfaction. We spent a little time distinguishing between some of the heritable and non-heritable factors of grit, and how we can go about developing more of a gritty disposition over time. She highlighted how most people tend to score higher on the perseverance side of the grit scale than the passion side, suggesting that passion is a key element to grow in our lives. She then spoke about education, and the ways where too much pressure from outside forces can actually crowd out the development of passion in the lives of young people. As a follow-up, I asked whether there was a way where she felt her work had been misunderstood by critics, and she gave a really interesting answer to that. I then closed by asking Dr. Duckworth what she would do if she could change one thing about all schools tomorrow. A classic overachiever, she gave us three instead. The first, having children interact with and support kids outside of their age range. Second, giving students the opportunity to explore their own interests rather than those given to them by their parents or the educational system. And finally, allowing young people the opportunity to develop a greater sense of comfort with experiences of failure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Angela Duckworth. I'd like to quickly remind you about one of Angela's offerings, the free thought of the week she offers through the Character Lab. The link to that is in the description of today's episode if you'd like to sign up for it. You can also find it on the Character Lab's website. If you had a great time listening today, we'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to the podcast 
and leave a positive review for it on the platform of your choice. I hope you'll join us again next week when we'll have part two of our episode on managing experiences related to an anxious temperament. Until then, thanks for listening.